I've got some really exciting news for y'all. We have been nominated for a Webby for Best Technology Podcast. A great big thank you for making this Webby a possibility. If you want to vote for the Traceroute Podcast for the People's Voice Award on the Webbies, go to bit.ly slash traceroutewebby. That's bit.ly slash traceroutewebby. Or click the link that is included in the show notes. You're listening to Traceroute, a podcast about the inner workings of our digital world. I'm Grace Aresi. I'm Shweta Saraf. I'm Amy Toby. And I'm Fen Aldrich. This is the first time that we've all gathered here like this simultaneously. It's giving the planet tears. It's like everyone is here. We got the band back together. We're getting the band back together. That's right. I love you said Planeteers. Exactly. I love the Planeteers. They're my favorite. <laughs> so I've been on the internet, which... You know, saying that in a room full of technologists, I'm sure we're all nodding our heads, right? But I've been specifically looking at the phenomenon of people recreating history. And I stumbled across what is lovingly known sometimes as like native IG or native TikTok, where Indigenous and Native peoples are having conversations about their respective identities, their tribal heritage, and I started noticing this one artist, I think they do non-digital mediums, but they are actually Igbo. And the Igbo people are a tribe in what is now today modern Nigeria, mm. and who during the time of forced enslavement in North, Central, and South America, as well as Europe, their culture was spread all throughout the world, especially the belief in their gods. And they've been asking AI questions that they then get a visual response to via mid-journey. And I think this is a great place to pause to ask someone to volunteer themselves as tribute to explain what mid-journey is. I can give my, my best understanding of it, but I'm not super deep into the AI world. We did mess around with not mid-journey. What's, what's, the, what's the one that we just messed around with? Uh, was it Stable Fusion? I think so. Um, so, I mean, all of these are generative AI, but like any of them, they're really just like, here is a bunch of data, and then I'm going to ask you about it and like give me your best guess of what I'm actually asking you for, right? Like based on all of this other information. Um, but some of them are really interesting because you can keep refining after you get an image and be like, okay, take that now as your base and like change it in this way. And so people can get some really impressive, like, actual art out of it after, like, continuing to refine over and over again the output that it gives rather than just, like, having it start over from random noise. And, and the other part is that you can ask it to do things in the style of a living artist. And this has become very problematic in that it has ingested, most of these models have ingested <laughs> art from living artists. And a lot of them you can ask, like, the style. You can ask uh, further information about it to, like, refine that so you can be, like... You know, uh, draw me a picture of, to mean to your point, history, right? Like, so you can ask for a picture of, I don't know, someone hunting a mammoth in the style of Van Gogh, right? Like, you can do these weird things like that, or like, uh, show me a, a cat in the style of H.R. Geiger and, uh, right. you know, really see what nonsense you can get. Yeah. And, you know, when I was looking at some of the things that I was seeing, something that I had to keep in mind was the natural language processing element. It's a text prompt in a Discord bot that actually creates these images. So someone has to type in, you know, show me 
Igbo gods, and then it renders them something. So I kind of want to show you what I'm talking about. Asking Midjourney what the Igbo gods look like. We've got the god Agunsi, who we're looking at right now, and he's got a lot of beautiful ornamentation, chocolate brown skin, high cheekbones, golden eyes. I'm talking about gold eyes gold highlights in his cheeks. It's looking like some really great highlighter from Fenty. We've got gold highlights into the hairline, over the brow bone, a full beard, all into this really intricate hairstyle that is chocolate brown and looks a little bit even like a wood carving. And it really made me think that this representation of Agunsi that we are looking at is so much in alignment with the actual like artifacts that exist of this god, you know, and totems that exist in shrines today and how this image is really emerging of those sorts of physical pieces with most likely images of what Igbo people or Nigerians look like in 2023. And it's just really interesting to see how this representation is being brought to life here in Midjourney. And it's made me think more deeply about how technology can really play a part and a role in helping us not just make new discoveries, but go back to old ones and really understand what they can mean for us today. So I want to use that as a as my way of opening up the story. Uh, what did you all like think or feel as you kind of saw that? Yeah, I've, I've got mixed feelings about all of it. Always very ambivalent whenever AI comes in because I love it as this creative process of exploring. I want to see these things that I have seen but like angled in a certain way that involve uh, characters that are personal to me or that involve uh, culture that I haven't seen but I still want to see uh, these gods as someone would have depicted but like from my culture, not from Norse mythology. We already have Thor. How exciting that is for people that can see themselves represented in a place that they haven't before. But at the same time, I have this back worry in my brain of like the way that this drives all style and drives all substance and drives all creativity to a most common denominator type of thing also worries me, right? Like I love the things that come out of nowhere in my brains and other brains of like hey, I just made this weird connection and it makes no sense and it's completely out there and this would have gotten pruned from any AI model, but I think it's interesting and worth following. Uh, and like we get new and interesting things out of that. So that's like where I come to when I see these images generated and hear these stories of like making this new thing and also see more and more AI creation starting to show up. You know, the the way that these models work is they take millions or billions, sometimes tens of billions of parameters and when you say, draw me these people from this mythology or history or, or whatever, you know, it'll, it'll go and choose those billions of parameters. And then that is what is used to generate the images that we see. And, and those billions of parameters are created by taking all the text and all the images that these things can download and hoover through their systems. And so what we see is maybe a little bit of a, of a lie in that it's, it's not actually probably anything like what those ancient folks look like. But it, there is a projection there of human imagination in that these models were trained on the images from human imagination, from the art of artists all over the internet, from photographs taken from across cultures and across the earth. And so when it does that projection into the past, 
it isn't quite the truth, but it does, as I think Grace was hoping for, give us some hints as to what might be in those gaps in our histories. I have a slightly different take on this. Uh, when I saw the Midjourney video, like my first reaction was curiosity and the creator in me got excited because this was not possible. I mean, AI has existed, right? But the generative part of it or how do you apply it today to do these kind of things and create things which were not existing in that shape or form. I mean, for a moment, I allowed myself to indulge and think that a creator in me would be really happy if I'm able to have these kind of tools and have the responsibility of using them the rightful way. But I, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. It opens up the doors, like Fenn was alluding to, right? Like, what do you feed into this and what do you get out of it? And how do you use it as a tool for a good outcome versus letting it become a tool which can destroy? This, to me, is what you just said, Shweta. It's that double-edged sword. Like, here is something that's now being brought to life in a way that we haven't seen before. And it's really that fine line of, well, is this fact? Is this fiction? Or is it actually a way for us to reveal what was known but is no longer known because of how history has worked? Especially for people who are missing that part of their history. People like me. If our listeners have been paying attention to some of the episodes, they might know that I'm originally from Ghana, West Africa, in the capital city, Accra. And I spent a lot of my childhood being very, quote-unquote, Ghanaian. But a lot of what I felt was my Ghanaian-ness is also what I feel to be very commonplace in a lot of people who identify as being Native or Indigenous to a lot of other places. And in kind of looking deeper into my own history, my own understanding of my heritage, I began to introspect these ancient symbols that are a part of our tradition. This ancient writing system that's a picturographic symbolic system called the Adinkra. All Ghanaians know about the Adinkra, but very few of us know their point of origin very few of us know their evolution, and very few of us know even who today in this moment stamps them and makes them. And I began asking my parents a lot of questions about them. I was like, tell me more about the symbols. Tell me about the myths that they're derived from. And my parents were supportive, but they could only offer me so much information. They would say stuff like, we don't know. A lot of the history that they had a lot of awareness of would go back as far as the 1700s. But yet our tribes are believed to be thousands of years old. And yet my parents couldn't go back further than what we know as modern history. And I kept hitting this wall and better trying to understand these symbols beyond just the representations they exist in today. I thought I need to go back in search of myself, figure out if I could fill in some of these gaps by clinging to the stories and meeting the people who might have more stories for me. And that could only be done in the origination point of my culture. Ghana is like now very popular. It's become very much a metropolitan hub. 
And what I think I love the most about Ghana is not necessarily new Ghana. It's old Ghana. It's crowded streets. It's marketplaces with bustling noises. It's elders in bright, bright cloth with, you know, stencils and traditional um, ornamentation. It's leather sandals clicking and clacking on dirt roads traffic because the cows are crossing, because the shepherds are moving their cows from one grazing ground to another. It's the magic of what I call dust in the air. And some of that is being replaced with modern things, you know, paved roads, fancy shoes that are not animal hide sandals and things like that. And I really went in search of the past in a place that was very rapidly becoming the future. That was such a beautiful story, transported me back to my origins. I grew up learning Vedas. Vedas are ancient Indian scriptures. There are four Vedas, and even though they were written at some point, they are mostly passed on from generation to generation by chanting them and reading them and by the power of the voice and memory. Yeah, Shweta, you know, I think that really speaks to the universal nature, I think, of intangibles and how we spread the intangibles, even if they are tied to something that you can see like an Adinkra or that you can hear like a Veda, like it becomes a part of you through some method of transmission. They're written in Sanskrit, correct? Yes. But how many people in today's world who may be on a daily basis chanting mantras or utilizing the truths of the Vedas to shepherd their life and give them meaning and direction and deep purpose Mm -hmm. can read Sanskrit or write it. And do you think anything is lost in the inability to do so? Yeah, I mean, uh, truly that number is shrinking by the second and Sanskrit is one of the most ancient languages in this world. Uh, I learned it in school, so I professionally learned it, but also learned it at home by listening. So it just makes me wonder if the transmission method is different, does it lose any power? Like, let's say, like, let's bring it back to our conversation about mid-journey and the role of AI If let's say there's AI technology that can consume Vedas and create new ones, is that strange? Is that culturally inappropriate? Is that uncomfortable? Like, how would that make you feel? How do you think people from your culture would feel? Like, is it okay? Yeah, so I have such a deep feeling about this, right? The first reaction is it's not okay, right? It's culturally inappropriate because like Vedas are not a thing which evolve, right? It's more like the answers are hidden in the past. You need to know your past to channel where the future goes. But the technologies that we are talking about can help us go deeper. But one thing I do want to say is the double-edged sword nature of this troubles me a lot too because I feel like with AI, with large language models, There is a way to reinforce existing biases based on what data you're feeding it, right? Who controls that? Who regulates that? And just as an example, I tried this uh, AI for creating self-portraits, which are meant to be of photographic quality. And you pay 20 bucks, you get 100 self-portraits, right? 
for me, I couldn't even use five of those hundred pictures because AI today is just not inclusive. There are not enough data points that the AI models are trained on someone from a South Asian origin, even though there are billions of us on this world. In the culture of my people, um, the colonizers, kind of what we do is absorb what's there and make it new again, right? We discover these things and then we write a scientific paper about it and like, look what I invented. Um, <laughs> and I think that kind of keeps going with a lot of the generative models that we're looking at, especially when we talk about recovering parts of our history. So my guess is that if we took like Midjourney or some other, any one of these models that have been trained on today's modern data sets, and we generate some new Adinkra or any other symbols uh, from any other cultures, we're gonna get a mix of that culture as best as it could be guessed by the ML model and like Marvel or um, yeah. DC Comics, right? And so we, we will get interesting things that will look probably very close to things that our ancestors might've invented, in fact, did, um, but maybe not directly into that culture that we're trying to study and so maybe that's where the danger lies, is, is being misled from truth to something that looks very truthy. Yeah, I think that's the challenge in looking at it to look back, right? It can't do sort of whole cloth creation, right? It's all based on patterns and everything you've seen and everything that seems likely and based on all of this information. What do you think it would look like? Even think is like a, a, a misnomer here. I don't like that word because like they're not doing that. <laughs> they're just doing pattern recognition and regurgitation based on a prompt. And I think that's important to keep in mind when we're looking at AI models, especially for trying to discover something, is that they're not going to find something new so much as put together something that seems to make sense based off everything they know have <laughs> uh, been trained on. I'm fascinated by where this conversation is going, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm fascinated because I have come to the conclusion that what everyone is describing is what's actually happening. Mm, totally agree. So I've been working on an independent research paper for the last two years. This is what started this whole entire, you know, journey home that's focused on better understanding what the Adinkra actually are. There's three potential stories about the history of the Adinkra stemming from the 1400s, but nothing further than that inside of historical narratives written by people who, quite frankly, are neither members of our tribe or even West African. It's history as told through the vantage of people who came and discovered us, right? So a lot of the material you find on the Adinkra are told from the lens of an outsider looking in. In the last 30 years, there's been books written by members of the Confederation of the Akan who are trying to reclaim their own history and stories, usually told from the vantage of textiles because the Adinkra are usually stamped on cloth, carved into metal and wood, and or made into bronze and gold jewelry. I went to Kumasi, which is the seat of the Ashanti Empire, because the Ashanti are the ones who hold the Adinkra. And so I went to the Adinkra Museum in hopes of meeting makers of Adinkra. Mm, elder wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> it's a small building that's mostly an outdoor patio a little rundown, it's dusty, and not that magic dusty, but that 
not been loved and kept together as well as it should be kind of dusty. And the process of carving the Adinkra for hundreds, maybe a thousand plus years has not changed. It's still an artist with a sharp tool carving very firmly and sometimes delicately into calabash gourds, creating these stamps that they then mount on sticks and then they stamp with ink that they've taken days and days to produce from the same trees that have been providing this ink for hundreds of years. And the tree is so cool. It's a tree that when you remove the bark, the bark actually regrows on the tree. They only take enough bark off of one section or one piece to not harm the tree. And they then pound the bark into dust. And then they double boil the bark with water for days to get this beautiful, almost kind of like a red indigo. And it looks black when it's stamped and dried, but when you actually see it up close, it's got this red-purple hue to it. And you see, it's in a brass pot over a fire. You know, when I met the Dinkra makers, something that I kept asking is, well, who decides what happens to the symbols? And I was asking that because as of now, we know about roughly 100 Adinkra. Some believe that there could be upwards to 400 plus. And so something that I actually went in search of was, where are the rest? Their point of origin story, one of them, is that they were taken from a tribe that the Ashanti conquered Mm. because they wanted the symbols. Not even that they wanted the tribe. They wanted access to the scribes. And at the time, scribes who worked with Adinkra lived apart. It is said that they were like their own sort of like community of Adinkra makers, thinkers, storytellers. And that's what the Ashanti king stole. He took the Adinkra makers and he took the ink and the seeds for the tree and the tools to carve out more stamps. So in today's world, it would be more like if Google came in and hired all of my programmers away from me. I think that's what you call an aqua hire now. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly what they're called now. But it's just making me think about, you know, so it's like, well, is the version of the Adinkra today the truthy version? Like maybe what's missing is, you know, as we say in pockets of the South, the real, real, like it's gone, gone. Like it's just not coming (laughs) back. And what we have that we think is real is the truthy Yeah, and listening to what you guys were saying, it makes me feel like the real truth or the truthy truth. How do you encapsulate that in a way which is easy to understand, but also leave it behind for the future generations so that they are not like wondering, you know, which version of the story I got told? And is it really bad if you have multiple versions? Because, I mean, that's how the world operates, right? One person's perception might be another person's reality or not. I think that this is why for a lot of people who identify as Native or Indigenous to any place, the majority of our culture is transmitted not through written things, even if they are written somewhere. The record exists. Well, 
That's not true. Let me back it up. <laughs> the record might have at one point existed, but due to some global intergalactic shenanigans, a lot of us have lost our records, have not seen our records, or our records live in other people's museums, and they call it artifacts, mm. even though we are alive and well and eyeballing the return of said artifact, right? Um, but with that as a tangent, a lot of what we're talking about is actually, once again, those intangibles. You want to learn the song, you're going to have to like come to my house and sing it. And then next time mm -hmm. there's a festival, you know, celebrating something fun, like a summer equinox or something, you're going to have to come and sing the song and practice in real time, right? There's that nature of it where it's in the moment, something is happening, it's not going to be recorded, and you can let loose or be free inside of it in order to participate. And there's even more, especially in like pre-colonial music. And some persists even today in like Southern Pentecostal culture <laughs> where the music isn't necessarily, there might be a song that people know, mm. but it evolves in the performance and becomes something new each time. And in those performances, you could try to write it down, but you're not going to get what you get each time people get together and perform those, those songs together. Oftentimes in my work, You'll, we'll join a meeting and somebody will join and they'll say, hey, can we record this? And I often say no. And this is important to me because oftentimes we want to have conversations where the conversation itself is lost to the ether. And the reason why is so that we can be authentic and be emotional and have hard conversations without it being caught on the record. And I think especially as we get closer and closer and more personal, maybe not having that record is part of what makes it so fulfilling, right? That it's gone. It's let go. It's it's burned up. And we're not carrying around this baggage of, of things from the past into the future. It's really interesting. Burned up, I think in particular, is what triggered a thought for myself. Like there's a lot of ritual, especially that's been built into different cultures, I'm sure, but um, of, of burning things, right? Like, like getting rid of this and letting go and letting it go and moving on from it. Right. And the way to symbolize that is to actually give things over, uh, to fire, which as far as we know, you know, it's, it's kind of the closest we can get to absolutely destroying a thing, right? It is, it is forever changed and chemically different than when it was put in. Right. Like that's a very interesting process of letting go and moving forward. And like, and also that concept of not capturing the exact truth of what happened a moment, not the facts of what can be recorded by camera or what can be observed by microphone, but like, what is the actual meaningful truth to have come out of that moment? Not necessarily what were the words said and how are people feeling right then? I think there's a lot of value in being able to present a new <laughs> a new version of ourselves moving forward, right? Yeah, Fen, I think that that's the bridge. And I think that that's really what technology's role is here. That is to bring together and to connect, to be honest in what we're doing and to identify when some of it is imaginative and for us to appreciate some of that for what it is. And to realize mm. that the truth doesn't mean that this has to be the only fact. It can just be, like you said, what we're getting out of it in that moment as we receive it. And I think that that's a really powerful and beautiful thought. Me too. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, growing up in a household that talked about the Adinkra, that respected what they mean, because the Adinkra, like I said before, are symbolic, pictographic stories. When you see one, they have a lesson to teach us about the natural world or the spiritual world or the psychological world of us. Every tribe has their variation of the stories. Some of us may call them different things even, but these symbols, we believe, predate our beginning. They are our beginning. They are eternal. No place in history. They are for everyone, and they can teach anyone. And I feel like by going to the Adinkra village in Kumasi, I really found that I encountered that in its own living dimension in that space. And here I am talking to two of the only three people who carve in the traditional way in a country that has millions of people. You know, the question I asked the lead artist is, where are the missing symbols? If one-fourth of it can give our people so much understanding, so much connection to each other, where could the rest possibly be? And, you know, when I asked him that, he was like, I don't know. I don't even fully know where they began. Hmm. He even didn't have the full history of the thing he did. But what he did tell me, and that I do strongly believe, is that the Adinkra have an energy to them. He believed that in working with them, they work with you. And so I asked him what that might mean. And he showed me an Adinkra symbol that he had created. And he was like, I couldn't stop thinking about this symbol. And I spoke with my father about it. And I just knew I had to bring it to life. Mm. And so the symbol he brought forth was a symbol that represented wisdom and the cyclical nature of the cycle of wisdom. He calls it two fish. And it's the tail of a fish next to the mouth of a fish in both directions. And he said that what it represents is how wisdom is about both the young and the more mature sharing understanding in a way in which it never ends. And I thought, well, one, that's so beautiful. And two, I cannot believe people are making new symbols. I really thought that the symbols were kind of locked in time. I didn't know or even think to imagine that they were evolving in real time with me, with modern Akan, with people who might look upon them and not necessarily be Akan or might not know what their heritage is because that was taken from them and who are connecting with it deeply. And it really reminded me of why the Adinkra even exist, right? Here was this person who was doing something in such an ancient way. And here was I in search of myself in a very modern way, right? I had hopped on an airplane. I had a private driver. Like, you know, I had done all these things in such a modern way to learn about this ancient craft, hoping to learn more about myself. And even though I had went in search of history, I actually found inside of the ancient, the modern. There's a natural cycle, I think, in what you describe, Grace, of we have the new thing, the new thing becomes the old thing, the old thing becomes the ancient thing and traditional thing. And it's natural for these things to come and go and pass and evolve. We've kind of been looking at a very narrow slice of the technology timeline and when we talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence, but 
really this tracks back not even thousands of years, just over the last few hundred, the printing press being a pretty uh, impactful technology that changed the way that we preserve and renew and evolve our cultures. And I think technology's role more than anything has been to speed it up. So most of our uh, talk has been so deep and, um, you know, technology focused. But one thing that I did in the first month of when ChatGPT and DALI and all these tools were getting released was I wrote a children's storybook, which is one of a passion of mine using AI as an experiment. And I also created artwork using AI and I did it in less than an hour because I was just like having an hour on weekend. I wanted to experiment. But the thing that was beautiful for me was that the characters in the storybook was my child and my dog. And I could give them the personality that I wanted and I could create chapters that I wanted them to live or imagine and bring it alive for them, you know. I mean, whether I'll publish it or not is another question, but I was satisfied a lot in terms of exploring that creativity. So it's funny because I end up with this similar connection. It really is just about the sort of creative moments. Um, it's, it's largely, if it works for you, it's useful, right? And I think there's value in how people manifest their intentions and what they want to see in the world. And like, there is value in taking time and putting ritual into like, hey, I'm going to do a thing that reinforces what I want in the world and like drives my attention towards that thing. And I, I think there's lots of value whether or not we know how it works. Um, and if we do know how it works, it doesn't stop being magic. And that's what I think is really interesting about all of this and about AI and why I think symbol creation is really important, right? It allows us to continue to find meaning and derive meaning from our world in ways that we don't scientifically measure but can feel like I feel this symbol has this meaning and now it does because I have assigned that meaning to it and uh, it communicates something I couldn't when I had to quantify this in words uh, when I had to try and wrap an explanation around it I couldn't but then I made this thing and it evoked the feelings that I wanted and uh, I really like that concept right and I think it ties into these uh, adinkra both as they are a thing that is constantly being created and constantly being lost and the meaning that that drives and what's important is how it affects us right now right like what we are going to take from that and what we're going to do with that and how we're going to use that to build the world that we want to see in front of us. And maybe that's the place where this goes. You know, maybe as these bridges are built and this content is created, maybe the idea is that there becomes a body of work that sits alongside the ancient and sits a part of the modern that is imaginative. It does what you're saying, Shweta, like it allows for us to project ourselves into maybe something that we haven't seen before or that we've not necessarily had an opportunity to express and the technology just helps us unveil another layer of ourselves, right? Kind of the journey I was on, right? Looking for myself. Maybe the ancient isn't as far away as we think and maybe it's evolving right next to us alongside the modern and maybe, just maybe, the work that people are doing with Midjourney is the kind of new tech work that can be done to help us fill gaps that we don't even quite know how to begin to answer. 
what can technology do for us here? And what should technology do for us here when it can get a little wobbly, when it can be the projection of imagination? And when that imagination may not belong to people who might have a shared foundational understanding of maybe what your cultural imagination would be. And how are we as a collective of people engaging in these new systems and these new ideas able to responsibly create a future that incorporates the missing pieces of the past? Traceroute is a podcast from Equinix and Stories Bureau. This episode was produced by me, Grace Aresi, with help, of course, from John Taylor and Mather DeLeon. It was edited by Joshua Ramsey and mixed by Jeremy Tuttle and Tim Ballant, with additional editing and sound design by Mather DeLeon. Our theme song was composed by Ty Gibbons. You can follow us on Twitter at origins underscore dev, that's D-E-V, and visit origins.dev for even more stories about the human layer of the stack. If you liked this story, please feel free to share it wherever you hang out online. And if you want to help even more, a five-star rating on Apple and Spotify really does go a long way towards helping other people find the show. I just really want to say an additional thank you for listening today. This story is deeply personal for me and has so much of myself wrapped up in it. I would really love to continue the conversation with you on Twitter at Grace Aresi. You can find the links and the spelling for that in the show notes. Traceroute is back with another story in two weeks. Until then, I'm Grace Aresi. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.